Thank you, Panaje, and may God add the blessing to the reading of his word this morning and a warm welcome to everyone who's here, especially if you're a first-time visitor or your first time to this particular facility. We are really blessed to be able to be here, and uh, we're so thankful. And a warm welcome to all of you online as well, from those that might be tuning in from Kilbride or downtown. I won't say up in Northern Cross because John Lewis is up there presently preaching and having a service with the good folks in Happy Valley Goose Bay. So we're excited about that as well. But if you've got your Bibles and you've turned to Daniel chapter 4, I'd love it if you'd remain there. It just so happened that, uh, as you know, we've been doing a series this summer called What is a Healthy Church Post-COVID? And we've been doing a lot of different subject matter. I kicked off this particular series with What is a Church? What is an actual church? And we've done things like David did what is worship, how a healthy church worships. And John Lewis preached his first sermon here um, last, no, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before in regards to a healthy church is a church that disciples. And then we've also learned about how a healthy church gathers and how a healthy church does all these things. And today I want to talk about how a healthy church is a generous church. A healthy church is a generous church. And my sermon in a sentence, if I was going to put it in that, is our relationship with God leads our worship. And our worship empowers our generosity. Let me say that again. Our relationship with God leads our worship. But then our worship empowers our generosity. On this particular chapter, for those of you that are part of our church, we have chosen this year to pick a book of the Bible every single month and just concentrate on that one book all month. And this month, it's the book of Daniel. So we're going to read through Daniel at least two to two and a half times as we take 31 days and just read through the 12 chapters and then go back and start again and go back and start again. And so this week, we've been in that first half, Daniel chapter 1, all the way up to today being chapter 7. And I thought I would talk about Nebuchadnezzar and this great dream of his, the interpretation of it, and then Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. And basically, if I was going to put a title to it, I would say this, give the right glory to God or eat grass, all right? Give the right glory to God or you're going to end up eating grass. And we have a lovely example of that in King Nebuchadnezzar. So let's deal with the white elephant in the room and use words like, tithing, sacrificial giving, faith promise giving, missions support, things like debt reduction or building funds or deacons funds or benevolence. These are all great church words that we have inside of our churches, don't we? And inevitably, even the world, when they think of an evangelical church in the modern era, often thinks of money, Money. They want our money. Even our own national, our provincial comedian, Buddy Was his name, and the other fellas does a whole bit on all the mainline churches and talks about money as being a big motivator, especially in the two evangelical churches that he identifies as being popular in our province. Money. It's a very literal and honest concern, and it's a hot topic right now in August of 2022. And yes, I'm going to be preaching and teaching a little bit about stewardship, so it must be just about money, right? Wrong. Money might be involved in generosity or stewardship, but really, 
what I want to talk about this morning, especially as we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, is this word, because this is the word I don't think we talk about enough, relationship. What it means to have a relationship. And yet, also in the church, often when we deal with this subject of giving or generosity and stuff, we will hear about things like robbing God or being a thief or stealing or taking what doesn't belong to you. And so that's also a worldly uh, thing right now. It's, we had the scandal back with our prime minister and the charity of the We Charity, and we have all these things with ethics and all this stuff, and we all want to feel a sense of morality and even justice when we hear about theft or robbing or stealing. We've seen such an upswing in um, shoplifting and all these things, especially in the United States and some of these places. But would some of those words be words you would apply to yourself? Now listen to me now. And your relationship, not with money, but with God. Did you know that outside of organized crime, petty theft is the number one thing that costs the Canadian-American economies more than anything else? In fact, last year, our combined economies lost over $50 billion in petty theft, where the average theft was somewhere around $30, $30. Now, what you need to understand, now you understand when you go to the mall or you go to a retail store that, believe it or not, up to a third of the price of what you're buying is actually a cost recovery system put in place by the businesses to compensate for all of this petty theft. Up to 33% of your sticker price is compensating for petty theft. But let me bring you also inside the church. The average giving of Protestants in Canada last year was factored in to be less than 3% of their income. What's even more sad is we gave less than 1% of our income to missions, which works about, are you ready for this? According to StatsCan, about $3 annually per person was given to missions by professing Protestants. In fact, if you do a study of Canada, we spent more money on the care and feeding of pets than giving to churches and charities in Canada combined this past year. Now, I don't know if that surprises you or scares you, but it does me. Now, I know you're saying, wait a second, Steve, you promised this wasn't going to be all about money. And I, I promise you it's not. But how you give is a reflection of your relationship with God. Or let me put it this way. It was the day the world stood still in our modern era. And we held our collective breath when we watched those planes fly into those towers. And then we had the horror of watching them fall. And the airlines were grounded. The stock market was closed for a week. And all of a sudden, money wasn't important. Air travel halted. Getting places wasn't important. And of course, already all of you know I'm talking about September of 9-11. And if you can believe it, we're now looking into over 20 years ago, come this coming September. And yet, maybe what you don't realize or maybe what you don't remember from all those years ago was when the weeks and even some months after 9-11, there was a massive rise in Bible sales. 
For the first time in decades in Canada and United States, the sale of Bibles rose, church attendance rose, charitable activities rose, giving rose. And yet, the tragedy is, here we are over 20 years later, and it's all gone back to the way it used to be, and in most cases, it's even worse. It's funny because when we face a crisis that none of us can handle, and let's be honest, we are all surrounded by crisis all the time, but crisis does have at least one thing going for it, doesn't it? Because in crisis, everything counts. Eugene Peterson said it, he said, in times of crisis, everything, absolutely everything is important and significant. Life itself is on the line. No word is casual. No action is marginal. And almost always, God and our relationship with God is in the front page of our life. One of the most famous presidents of the United States, John F. Kennedy, if you read his biography, when he had back issues and when he was serving in the war, he had a near-death experience on a boat and one of the real crises of his life in which he pledged that he would be more spiritual. He writes extensively about this in his early life. But the reality is we are facing difficulties sometimes. But actually, maybe what the greatest difficulty for us, for churches, for the Church of Canada, is actually when we face the mundane, the humdrum times of life. Have you ever noticed how often we tend to either question God or forget about God treat them as trivial, or go through the motions of worship without even engaging our mind, much less our heart. And this is exactly, by the way, what Daniel chapter 4 teaches us. We see how success breeds contempt. Success breeds self-sufficiently, self-sufficiency, where we play games, games with ourselves, with our friends and our families, games within the church, and tragically, games with God. But here we are again. Or we find ourselves once again on the tail end of another crisis. What has the last two and a half years been like with COVID? Monkeypox, inflation, political turmoil, wars and rumors of wars, cultural shifts. And it's amazing because through most of 2020 and 2021, you had another little resurgence of spirituality. People tuned in. A lot of churches talked about Zoom calling and all these things. And more people wanted to pray. And more people wanted to tune in on social media. And we all became experts in social media. And yet, here we are halfway through now on the other side of 2022. And all that seems to have given away to something even worse. Because now Canada, the United States, lives under this umbrella of tribalism and infighting amongst itself politically and tragically it's made itself into the church. We are the culture now of self-justifying survivalism. And we see that among so-called professing Christians. And I think we've seen it like we've never seen it before. Or if I'm going to be honest, at least not in my lifetime. And so this is why we are doing this series this summer. Yes, generosity or stewardship is an obvious and biblically mandated character. It's a quality of a healthy church. Yet, 
I would like us to look at one of the richest, most powerful men that ever lived and see he how he learned he was either going to give right, give God glory right, or spend the rest of his life eating grass. It's a comical yet very informative passage of Scripture, Daniel chapter 4. I want you to know this true story of Nebuchadnezzar, and it's actually told in his own words. And then if time allows us as we come to the table of the Lord, I want to tie this all together and look to the New Testament, even consider James's letter and our vision of the ministries we have here at Calvary Baptist Church. And I would like us to make a decision. For the rest of this year, will we make a covenant to give God glory? Will you and I take the challenge of Malachi chapter 3 verse 10 and we will try the Lord, we will test the Lord and experience the amazing blessings that come from the windows of heaven when we worship right and our worship empowers our generosity. Because brothers and sisters, I firmly believe in this book. I really believe in this book. And from Genesis to Revelation in 2022, I believe every word of it is inspired. I believe you can trust every word of it. It is relevant. It is for every one of us today, from the youngest of you to the oldest, male and female, married, single, grandparents, wherever you are on the spectrum of life, this Bible is God's word to you and I. And God will do things through it, and he'll do things that we think are impossible. Can I ask, do you think that? Thank you, Catherine. So, to set this up, though, let me read a New Testament passage for you. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Listen to Paul. He says, why am I in Daniel chapter 4? Because in Romans, Paul says to the church there, for whatever was written in former days, referring to the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. Why? That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, watch this now, we might have hope. So wherever you're at today, whatever your story is, However you found yourself walking into this building, coming to this worship service, Paul wants you to know that this Bible was written for your endurance and encouragement because the scriptures will give you hope. And what's going to happen? May the God of endurance and encouragement, watch this, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Here's what happens. That together you may with one voice, watch, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the result of this. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And again, here's our theme, for the glory of God. So here's my prayer. I want to walk us through this, and I want us to see the challenge from God's word. And I want us to learn. I want us to persevere. I want us to find hope. I want us to be like-minded and with one mouth glorify God. I don't want to have communion, and it's just another religious activity that we do. This should mean something. And so look at me, with me as I just take you through a brief survey of Daniel chapter 4. Number one, notice Nebuchadnezzar's declaration in verses 1 to 3. Nebuchadnezzar starts this out as Daniel writes it. And he says, here's what Nebuchadnezzar said one day. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. He was the superpower. Babylon ruled the then known planet of earth. He could say these things and he believed and he says, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders, watch, that the most high God has done for me. He's not talking about all the gods of the Babylon. He's talking about Daniel's God. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, the God of the Jews in Israel, he says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I want you to know at the outset, I believe that Nebuchadnezzar was a true follower and believer in God. He was an Old Testament saint, and you can see it in these words in verses 1 to 3. J. Vernon McGree, that old Texas preacher, says, this is Nebuchadnezzar's marvelous testimony, and it shows development in the faith of this man. Back in Daniel chapter 3, verse 29, he issued a decree and expressed a a conviction after he had the fiery furnace experience with the three boys. But here in chapter 4, he gives a personal testimony. There, in chapter 3, it was a decree, but here it is a decision. Here he was talking as the king of Babylon, basically admitting Daniel's God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God is superior to all of my gods. But here he's saying, no, their God is my God. I have decided to follow God. There it was a conviction. Here it was a conversion. That's what J. Vernon McGee says. I think that's beautiful. Nebuchadnezzar began and ended this chapter, if you noticed, when Panaje read it, with praise. In verses 1 to 3, and then verses 36 to 38, you've got him praising God. And in between, we're told why he converted to such worship of the true God. You know, it was David, or sorry, it was Paul again in Romans, after unpacking the gospel in chapters 1 through 10, And then he comes to chapter 11, and it's almost like he can't help himself when he gets to the end, and he's talked about the glories of God saving him. And when he comes to Romans chapter 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the Bible. And next, in verses 4 to 18, you have Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, for sake of time, I'm not going to read it all, but basically, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has a dream about this massive tree. Now, the guy has a bit of a problem with having dreams about big things, all right? Remember, his first dream was about this big statue with a head of gold and and then shoulders and stuff of silver and then bronze and then iron and all that kind of stuff, And, and he almost massacred all of his wise men in dealing with that. But now in chapter four, he has another dream. This time it's about this massive, mighty tree. And it says it reached up into heaven and all of the earth was sheltered by this tree and everybody dwelt in this tree. And once again, nobody could give him the interpretation of it. But this time Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do a big threat thing where he threatens to kill everybody. He immediately calls Daniel. He immediately says, Daniel, bring me Daniel because Daniel will know what the interpretation is. Now, here's what you need to realize about your Bible. And here's why I love telling people this. When you take the page and turn from Daniel chapter 3 to Daniel chapter 4, 30 years has gone by. 30 years. It wasn't like he just had bad pizza and had back-to-back bad dreams. No, he had lived a life. 30 years is a long time. 30 years he had wrestled with this, and he has this dream. But you'll notice three things about God in this dream. If you read it in verses 4 to 18, you'll notice that it's God who rules all the kingdom of men. When Daniel comes to give him the interpretation, 
And then you find out that it's God who gives to whomever he wants. God is sovereign. He is the one that sets up kingdoms and tears them down. And so Nebuchadnezzar is feeling kind of nervous about this because he's tempted to think, I'm the guy who made my kingdom. I'm a self-made man. I am self-sufficient. I will solve my own problems. I have pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Where my predecessors failed, I have succeeded. Does any of that sound familiar? Is that not the culture of 2022? But also, in his dream, he discovers that God sets up over even the basest of men. This is the God that he dreams about. But in that dream, he finds out, if you read it in verse 16, he's warned and Daniel tells him that if he doesn't turn from his sin and practice righteousness, if he doesn't turn from his selfishness and practice compassion and generosity, then he is going to suffer in a way he never thought possible. God would make him act like an animal. I don't know, I know we have one doctor in the room, and I don't know if I'm going to say this right. The medical term is called, I think, lycanthropy. Did I say that right? I'll show it afterwards, and you can tell me if I said that right. L-Y-C-A-N-T-H-R-O-P-Y. Something, all right, I'm getting a half shake from, from our doctor over there. But basically, it is the medical condition in which a person thinks he or she is an animal and actually lives wildly. They are known to eat grass, have thick and unkept nails or shaggy hair, and behave in an inhuman behavior. In our passage, it talks about these seven years. It's not months. The warning is in the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't realize that you are not a self-made king, you are a king because God has made you king, then God says to him, I will make you think about yourself for seven years years. And then you'll notice in verses 19 to 27, God's demands. Look at what it says, because God, Daniel comes in verse 19, and whose name was Belteshazzar, and notice Daniel is dismayed for a while in verse 19, and his thoughts alarmed him. He was actually really concerned about the interpretation of the dream. It bothered him what he was going to have to tell King Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 20, he says, the tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade. Verse 22, it is you, who, O king, who have grown and become strong. But then as Panage read for us, go down in verse 27. Here is the demand of God. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You see, my sermon in the sentence was again, right? Your worship, your worship comes out of your relationship with God, but your worship that empowers your generosity. So at the beginning of this, Nebuchadnezzar has already acknowledged that God is superior. Now, 30 years later, and seeing the faithfulness of Daniel, he has seen so many things in those 30 years. He even acknowledges that great is God. But he has this dream, and he still is tempted to think, but you know, 
you know what? I'm pretty good. I've, I've done some things. I've, I've accomplished some stuff. I, I got a resume now, and, you know, I, I, wanna, I want some credit. Let the wicked forsake his way is what God said in Isaiah 55 verse 7. And unrighteous men break off and forsake his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. And here's the promise. And God will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God demanded of King Nebuchadnezzar something very similar, by the way, that James would tell his audience thousands of years later in James chapter 4. It was a call to repentance, a call from God to show mercy to the poor, which, by the way, James actually uses as a definition of what real religion is. God demands that we give right to meet the needs of others. I love this. I found this here. But I also want us all to see that God is not looking for empire builders. He's looking for kingdom builders. God is not looking for us to build empires. God doesn't want you to pad your resume. God doesn't need you to come and say, Lord, look what I've done for you. Probably one of the most haunting passages of the entire Bible is Jesus as he concludes his own sermon on the mount, right? When he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we've done all kinds of good things in your name. And then the haunting words that God will look at them and say, I don't, I don't know you. I don't, I don't know you. In a comical way, one of my childhood Actually, I need to be honest here. It wasn't my childhood. When Debbie and I were dating, my favorite comic was Calvin and Hobbes. And to be honest with you, I still enjoy sitting down with my Calvin and Hobbes comics. And uh, when we were dating, every time we had an anniversary, every time we celebrated something in our dating and our engagement, Debbie would buy me another Calvin and Hobbes book. And one of my favorite comics, which is one, I could just quote Calvin and Hobbes to you all morning, but he gets lost in the zoo and he's looking around, and he's got this woman, and he realizes that he's got the wrong woman, and he looks up, and he realizes he's lost, and so this woman says, oh, honey, what does your mom look like? And he says, well, lady, from the knees down, just like you, right? And a lot of us are guilty of this with God. We are actually lost, but we don't know it, and we're clinging to something that we think looks like God, only to discover when we look up Oh, I'm not clinging to God at all. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was warning him of. Daniel has to tell him, Nebuchadnezzar, you are giving lip service to God, but you're clinging to your accomplishments. You are thinking that it's still about you making yourself worthy to God, and that's not what it is. God's not impressed, by the way, with our facilities. He's impressed with our heart. God doesn't look at our programs he looks at the motives behind our programs. God is not with our words, but our actions. God called on Nebuchadnezzar to stop building an empire and start building a kingdom, God's kingdom. One man has written, start building in the lives of people, and I think the Lord will let you have what he wants you to have. But then we saw what Panage read for us in verses 28 to 33. You have Nebuchadnezzar's demise. Look at verse 29 once again, and it says, 
And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which watch, I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Here was his demise. And there's a reference to 12 months. Do you see even the grace of God? God, 30 years this guy struggled with one foot in his own kingdom and one foot in God's kingdom. Then God in his mercy gives him this dream that Daniel comes and lovingly interprets for him. And then God gives him another 12 months Two, stop practicing his sin and start practicing righteousness. And he still doesn't do it. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar was allowed this full year in the hope that he might repent and avert the judgment of God, which is what Daniel's desire was. Yet, just like we see in 9-11, and now as we see it at the tail end of COVID, our memories are short and we easily think very quickly right after we're afraid or scared and it seems like we've survived and it's not as bad as we thought. Oh, yeah, yeah, let's go back to life is about me. I can make it on my own now. And we're tempted to turn our relationship with God into a religion about God. And I'm telling you, the reason why I wanted to preach this series is ever, if that was true, it's in this province and in this city where we have turned relationship with God into a religion about God. And when reality, what we're actually saying, my religion is really about me and I use God language. And church, this is what Acts chapter 5 and Annas and Sapphira is all about. It's pretending. It's acting godly. It's faking compassion and sacrifice when all along it was for selfishness or power or influence or compliments. If our generosity is only, only motivated by this will give me more influence or people are going to look up to me or now I have a bigger voice or now people will say things about me or think I'm godly. And do you wonder, because this is rampant in our churches today, which is why that society out there has so little tolerance and respect for Christians anymore. Because we're too busy pretending like we're not flawed and we're not scared and we're not weak. Guys, listen, the greatest testimony to St. John's is not how polished church is but how amazing Christ is. That's what a healthy church does. We don't present wonderful churches. We present a wonderful Savior. It should be normal for the world to look at us and go, they're just like me. But I see how God's changing them. And we own our junk and we're honest about our struggles and our weaknesses and we don't blame. What are the four key ways that you know you're letting sin run your life? What are they? The Bible tells you you're either defensive, you're hiding, you're deflecting, or you're blaming. When you are not confident that God loves you and you do wrong, you will either blame somebody else or you will make excuses for your action, or you will hide somewhere and run from God, or you will deflect and not deal with it. 
But church, Christians, we should be a place where we don't make excuses and we don't hide and we don't blame and we don't deflect because here it is safe to come before a living God who knows us anyway and say, Lord, I need you. Oh, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. The world doesn't need to see perfect Christians. It needs to see imperfect people running to a perfect Christ, finding forgiveness over and over and over again every single day. That's the power of a healthy church. This was what brought about the demise of Nebuchadnezzar. But then in verses 34 to the end of the chapter, you see Nebuchadnezzar's deliverance. Look at what it says in verse 34. He says, I lifted my eyes. Now, this guy was stubborn. Seven years. Didn't cut his hair. Ooh, I get a chill just thinking about that. For those of you in the church, no, I got my hair cut on Friday. It was heavenly because I had to wait 14 days for my last haircut. Seven years eating grass. Seven years living like an animal. And we all think, man, I'm glad it's not me. But wait, wait, wait. How long have you been in the cycle of life of whatever it is you're living right now? How often do you find yourself? I mean, even the world says the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So you might think, oh, well, Steve, I'm not out eating grass and digging around. No, but what are you doing? Are you chasing credit cards? Are you chasing keeping up with the Joneses? Are you chasing whatever the newest thing is, the fat, fattest thing, the newest iPhone, the, the best fashion, or you need, you need a flag or, or, or something, a purse that has Louis Vuitton on it? What is it? Do you need a bigger home? Do you need a nicer garden? Do you need better vacations? What is it where you're chasing after lesser things and it's sucking the life right out of you? He says, I lifted my eyes, and God was instantly there. God told the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man or woman boast in his or her might. Let not the rich man or woman boast in their riches, but let us who boast, boast in this, that God understands and knows me, that I, Jesus says, am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. But notice with me what is at the heart of this story. What is the overarching lesson we are to learn? And in a statement, it's this. With God, motive is everything. With God, motive is everything. Let me give you an example. The story is told in junior church of a teacher who asked her eight eager 10-year-olds if they would give a million dollars to the missionaries, and they all put up their hands and screamed, yes. And then she said, would you give $1,000? And again, they all said, yes, of course. And then she said, how about $100? And they said, yes, all of us, we agree, we would give it. And then she said, how about just a dollar to the missionaries? And nine of the 10 boys said yes. And she looked at Johnny and she said, you didn't say yes. And he said, well, until you said a dollar, I could say yes, because now I actually have a dollar to give. <sighs> Right? It's easy. I say this a lot when I do marriage counseling, right? It's often, you know, all of our love songs, 
that are written and all these guys who want to declare their love to their girlfriend or fiance. Or their, you know, I'd go to the moon for you or I'd go to the end. I would climb the highest mountain or I would swim to the bottom of the ocean. And, and most women, you know what the response to that is? Uh, I don't need that. I'd just like you to take out the trash. Where are those love, love songs? Honey, I'll take out the trash for you, right? I'll pick up my underwear when they're dirty. You don't, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't sell albums. For women, it would, <laughs> right? It's easy for us to get in church and proclaim these wonderful, magnificent declarations to God. And then God says, okay, well, give me the dollar that's in your pocket, Give me the afternoon when you feel like you've worked really hard. Be faithful and be honest and humble yourself and admit to others that you're struggling. You've got some doubts. Things aren't going the way you'd hoped they'd go. You're hanging on with all your life. Isn't it exhausting how hard we work to act like we're okay? Isn't it amazing? As parents, all of you that are parents in this room, you know what I'm talking about, right? Because at some point in your parenting journey, you've probably said something like this to your kids. You know, if you worked half as hard doing your schoolwork as you had true trying to not do your schoolwork, you would be a straight A student. <laughs> and the Snickers tell me, you've all said it. So you don't think God doesn't look down in love and say, you know, if you guys would all just work as hard at coming and trusting me as you do, at trying to convince me you don't need me, your lives would be way more peaceful and joyful. Stings, doesn't it? You see, I've been reading this little book called The Generosity Factor. It's a biography of the guy named Truett Cathy, who was the founder of Chick-fil-A. He gives the five ways that he has lived his life. He decided early on, as God was blessing him, that he would live by this set of statements. God owns it all, or he owns it all. Every day is an opportunity. Action is required. Remember your blessings, and thank God for everything. And if you actually read it out, it actually spells out the word heart. And that became his anthem for life. It's interesting because he goes on to say this, the real key to grace giving, generous giving, giving that provokes the blessing of God is actually a changed heart. It's a heart that's in sync with God. He would say, when, your heart, when, when you're in heart sync with God's purpose and plan, the words generosity, service, and relationship actually describe your life. It doesn't need to be a plan. But if you measure yourself in terms of wealth, achievement, status, you're into a never-ending game. The more you get, the more you want. Enough is never enough. But if you focus on the spiritual significance, you realize that you're already loved and accepted. And love and acceptance are the greatest things anyone can possess. And now you know, and you may ask, okay, Pastor Steve, how does one know if they've truly attained significance? And that's a great question. And here's the answer. You'll know by the sincerity of your worship and your generosity, by the joy you find in serving, by the selfless nature of your relationships. You will not be keeping a tally and a score. You'll know the depths of your changed heart. John MacArthur says, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Now, let me say that again. 
You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And then as we come to the table of the Lord, notice in verse 36 and 37, Nebuchadnezzar worships. And notice there's three parts of it, glory, praise, and honor. He praised God. He extolled God. He honored God. Think about that just for a minute. It means praise means what? To, to laud, to adulate, to adore. What does extol mean? It means to lift up or exalt. What does honor mean? It gives to give glory. It's the same use, by the way, as in Revelation 4 and 5, when you're in that eternal worship of, of all of the world before Almighty God. And so when I say give right or eat grass, the word of God means Believe in your heart, express with your mouth, and show with your deeds praise, exaltation, and glory to God. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ that I've been talking about all morning, and you don't know him, you know of him, but you don't know him as the Lord of the universe, the one that Nebuchadnezzar said, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Isn't it ironic? Nebuchadnezzar would say this, and this is how Jesus is described in Revelation 4 and 5. Then I want you to realize, to consider Nebuchadnezzar, he was rich and powerful, he was able to do and be anything he wanted, yet he wasn't happy, he wasn't in control of his life. And at the end of it, some of the golden years of his life were eating grass. But he humbled himself and believed. He came to his senses and he lifted his eyes. And so, I want to challenge us to be a healthy church, Calvary. Nebuchadnezzar was expected to show mercy to the poor and so are we. In 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul told Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. They are to do good and be rich in good words, works, to be generous and ready to share. And so we're to draw near and we're to all of these things and we're to hold fast and we're to stir each other up in Hebrews chapter 11, 10. And so... Martin Luther said, take a look at your own heart and you will soon find out what it has struck to it and where your treasure is. He said, it's easy to determine whether hearing the word of God and living according to it and achieving such a life gives you as much enjoyment and calls forth as much diligence from you as does accumulating and saving money and property. So the decision is, will you and I trust and obey? George Sweeting said, the Macedonian Christians Giving was not a chore, but a challenge, not a burden, but a blessing. Giving was not something to be avoided, but a privilege to be desired. J. Vernon McGee again, and I end with this. He said, I was visiting the mission field in Venezuela, and a certain missionary there, he told me about a family that he knew back in Los Angeles, and the missionary said, how generous they have been to me, and I thank God for them. That is the way Paul said it would be. Missionaries in Venezuela were thanking God for one family in Los Angeles, and then he writes this, I ask every member of every church, is anyone anywhere thanking God for your generosity? Regardless of how much you are giving, you can't give like God gives. He has given an unspeakable gift. No one can approach the gift that God gave in giving his own son to die. Think about that. This is where we're headed now. 
This is what Paul is talking about to the Corinthians. Though he was rich, he left heaven. He left all the glory. Think of this. Jesus came down as a missionary to his own world. He came not only to live, but to give his life in death for you and I. He came to die on a cross. He came to be brutally killed in order that you and I might have eternal life. He is the unspeakable gift to you and I and this church. That is the very apex of giving, and none of us can go beyond that kind of giving. So all we can do to be a generous church is simply respond to that reality. So let's take that mindset and let's celebrate the table of the Lord, not as a religious activity, but as the ultimate example of generosity. Let's pray. Father God, let us now spend just a few moments, brief moments in our lives, in the busyness and the hustle and bustle of the social media instantaneousness of life, where we can know about something within seconds. Be still and know that you are God. As we eat this unleavened bread that reminds us of your broken, perfect body, as we drink of this grape juice that represents your blood spilled perfectly, where we can be washed white in the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray that if any man or woman here doesn't know you, that this will be a challenge and a cry and an invitation for them to step out in safety and courage and ask someone to help them know that they are loved and forgiven and adopted by God. And I pray for every man and woman here who is a Christian, that as we come to this table, we would humble ourselves and say, I am not a Christian because of my resume. I am a Christian because of Christ. And we come together as one, no pretending, no acting. Oh God, may the spirit of Ananias and Sapphira not be here amongst us. May we be genuine in this. And may this table remind us of why we seek to live in community and why we disciple and why we, Father, are worshiping and why we are called to be generous and why that is for joy. Because we have the unspeakable gift of Jesus Christ as Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.